My name is Erin Novak, and I'm the middle school director. I feel like middle school is this really, really critical time where young people are kind of on the brink of no longer being children, but they're still children. So they've got the openness and playfulness of childhood, and yet their minds are developing into a more critical, you know, more, more able to be critical of the world, more able to think abstractly. And so that's like a magical moment, I think, to really like engage the mind. What skills will students need to be prepared for an increasingly complex future? As technology continues to shape our society and our structures of communication, how should education respond? And can places of privilege foster equity and inclusivity within and beyond their communities? My name is Tristan Friedberg-Radman. This is Learned. On Learned, we're looking beyond test scores and college acceptance rates to understand how education can shape the future of our society and what kind of teaching we need to bring us there. Our guest today is Aaron Novak, who came to Oakwood in 2011 and became middle school director in 2015. Ivan Johnson is hosting today's episode, so I'll kick it over to him. He sat down with Aaron to talk about the challenges middle schoolers and their educators face, how to foster dialogue instead of debate, and the responsibilities of teaching students with significant privilege. You know, both you and I have been sort of deans and mm-hmm. played that administrative role at the school Oakwood. Mm-hmm. And I can think of many times where a parent will say, you have the like worst job. Like I would never do your job mm-hmm. ever. And I'm curious, how do you feel when someone says that? Somebody said that to me like yesterday, <laughs> actually. Um, I think there's a couple things. The first is that I think a lot of people think back to that time in their lives as being horrible. So to think about kind of reliving it or reliving it with others, you know, with, with other kids who are going through that sounds dreadful. I also think that a lot of people get so far away from that self that they were at that age. They can't even fathom reconnecting. I can't really think of anything that I would rather be doing than being a part of like other people's critical moment and like developing into like mm-hmm. good humans and that moment when they're trying to so desperately figure out who they are and what the world's about and like how they fit into it. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about, like use the word horrible. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people associate that mm-hmm. time as being mm-hmm. horrible. Uh, in fact, I was, I just asked your daughter yesterday, we were talking, I don't know if you heard that comment, but mm-hmm. we were, I was asking her how things was going and her first <laughs> comment was like, well, it's not eighth grade. <laughs> I did hear that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there are some things that make it hard right now that have always been hard. People are going through huge changes physically, emotionally, socially, right? Puberty is like in full force for most kids, but not all. So that makes it even like challenging on another level because <laughs> you have seventh graders who look like fourth graders and seventh graders who look like they're 10th graders. But there are also a lot of, I think, new challenges in middle school just with much less hands-on or going out and riding their bikes around their neighborhoods or being out in the world and much more 
engaged digitally and on screens. So in some ways, they're sort of seeing a lot more and yet experiencing less. Definitely, there's a certain amount of sort of emotional labor. (laughs) I think that goes with being a teacher, living like a school life, you know, where you're around kids all the time and parents and families and there are big feelings around the stuff that goes on. And so it can be tiring, exhausting. And I also feel like oftentimes, though, it's just super energizing to be a part of, you know, growing up kids. I've never heard the term emotional labor. <laughs> and I think it really <laughs> defines. <laughs> I learned it recently, actually. Okay. It's like a thing. Yeah, okay. It yeah, is it a thing. It totally makes sense. Yeah. I think there's humor in two ways. On the one hand, there's just humor with students because you need to have a sense of humor in order to just engage with, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds Mm -hmm. or like you're missing out, first of all, and it's hard to connect with them. Mm -hmm. So I think you need humor in that way. So that exists. And I also think it just exists because being somebody who has a perspective on a lot of the things that students are going through. There's definitely humor between the adults (laughs) who are helping to support these young people. That sounds terrible, though. (laughs) You have developed a a new program here in seventh grade Mm -hmm. and that deals with identity and racial identity. Can you talk about like what that program is and why you decided that, that was something that Oak would need to have? Students need to be able to be in dialogue with one another as opposed to kind of like clicking into debate mode, right? In order to kind of create understanding with another person who maybe has a different identity, they need to be able to be in dialogue and listen and share. So that was one skill that we thought we needed to really front load in like the beginning Mm. of seventh grade. I mean, I think that idea of debate versus dialogue is feels so relevant Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Why are they coming with debate as being Mm. there? Well, Oakwood has an amazing debate program. (laughs) And it's a wonderful, valuable skill to be able to build an argument and present that argument and understand the opposing side, to find weaknesses in that side so that you can assert your sort of point of view. But debate is exactly that. It's really, its intention is to win or to prove your point. Mm -hmm. And there's value in that. But I think that we just need to keep a balanced view of the value in also communicating with other people, not to prove your point, but to actually increase your understanding of something or to be open to your perspective shifting because of what somebody else has to offer. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that I think we were not, we don't have a dialogue team on (laughs) campus, you know? Like I think that that we weren't sort of explicitly building that skill Mm -hmm. in the same way. And I think we need to, we need a lot more people who can listen to one another. 
So something that I know you've developed and you've done work on here is white affinity spaces. Mm -hmm. So can you first off just tell us what a white affinity space is mm -hmm. uh, and the different ways in which you've used white affinity spaces in a school setting? As I engaged in this work, um, I became more and more aware of my own racial identity. I identify as a white person. And that is something that I came to realize I didn't know what that meant. Like, I didn't really have an understanding of what it meant to be white. Whiteness is something in our society that many people are not eager to claim or to name because of the history of white supremacy in our country. But also, it is just what we live in. It's the dominant culture. And so it's easy to not name or to not distinguish or, or point out that you are a part of the dominant culture. The problems in our society cannot be solved or put on people of color to solve. There are problems that all of us need to solve together. And I think, generally speaking, that is not something that white people have collectively taken on. We need to engage young people with all racial identities in working on issues of racial justice. I recently led a workshop and my class was called, I still don't understand why we need affinity spaces. <laughs> and it was for seventh and eighth graders who very naturally kind of go to ideas like, well, isn't separating people bad? Shouldn't we all be together? But I'm a white person. I want, you know, somebody with a different racial experience to tell me what their experience is. And that's how I think I want to engage, right? The, all those things are very natural. And what we know about doing this work is that actually having moments where people get to come together with others who share their racial identity, there can be really valuable connections made and awareness raised that then each of those groups can bring back to our communal life that we lead every day to be able to engage in courageous conversations with people who are different from us. Can you talk about a personal experience that maybe see the importance to making this work on racial identity an important part of your work? I think I used to approach all students more similarly. Honestly, it was a, this is hard to talk about actually. There were moments where something was said in like a classroom by a white student that I, I recognized as being terribly insensitive with a student of color in the room. And it's almost like in witnessing it, because I have more awareness, obviously, than a lot of these, you know, 12 or 13-year-olds do. It kind of made me realize, I'm sure I have that lack of awareness, you know, just, just observing that dynamic with majority culture, comments that are made or or oversights or a lack of understanding you know i think it's something that that we all have to work on for me it's like figuring out my own racial identity and 
having that awareness that I have and can bring to my work impact my relationships and my choices that I make every day and the things that I'm planning in school and to to really acknowledge like each student's whole self and what that means and what that brings with it and what it means that student might need in terms of support in this school. Do you know that student today? Like, do you think that student has any idea about the impact that they had on your life? No. Yeah. But I don't know if that's the wrong answer. I think maybe we were, there's this idea that we want to treat everybody equal. Like that's yeah. our goal as a teacher. Yeah. yeah. And so to treat everybody equal, we need to look at everybody equally. Right. And it sounds like, like you're saying that, that that's not going to work. No. Because people are coming to us with all these different experiences. Sure. And it's also not just enough to understand that difference in equality and equity. Because you can understand that, that everybody needs something different. But unless you have a better understanding of those differences, you can't really do the different that's needed. You know what I mean? You can't bridge kind of the gaps that exist and you can't recognize what students need. I also feel that the ways that my own education as a young person was really insufficient in terms of being aware of just what was going on around me in the city of Los Angeles. I grew up in LA. I went to a diverse school that celebrated you know, people's different ethnic backgrounds. I definitely had a positive attitude towards difference my whole life. And I also kind of felt like growing up, that was, that was good. That was kind of, you know. That was enough. When I, yeah. And when yeah. I was a senior in high school, the Rodney King trial verdict was shared. And the city was in complete chaos I was shocked and I realized in getting to have conversations with the black students at my school who would come to Hollywood from their neighborhoods where there was a lot more going on about their reality and the discrimination that they faced daily I felt like I had been asleep my entire life that like nobody like how could I have lived in the city and not been aware of what was going on so it kind of shifted my thinking and yet I mean I think that's part of what helped me to choose to be a teacher is just feeling as though my own education that had been fine had been completely inadequate. I think that with privilege often comes a limited understanding unless you very intentionally seek to broaden your view and really dig in. Because I think Privilege brings with it certain protection from difficulty, challenge, and I think it's just human nature as things are 
easy or easier that sometimes it makes it harder to see beyond that or to see somebody else's challenge. And so when you have a community that has substantial privilege, I think it can be hard with students who are less aware of the challenges and struggles that some students have. And there can be a lot of sort of disconnect or misunderstanding. And so I think that's why it's so important that we do the work we do to help all students to be sensitive to one another, to learn to listen to one another, and really be aware of the serious injustices and inequities that exist that are a reality that, like, some people might not be aware of because of the world that they're living in. I've always had a uh, deep respect for you as an educator, but it was amazing to get to get deeper into those perspectives and hear your thoughts on it. So thank you for your time. There's a million people talking. None of them say a word, not to me. So many are the lonely days that pass on a crowded city street where a lot of nothing happens is supported by Oakwood School, a K-12 independent school in Los Angeles, California. Today's episode was produced by me, Tristan Friedberg-Rodman. I graduated from Oakwood in 2011. My co-producers are Ivan Johnson, Oakwood's Director of Co-Curricular Programs, and Christy Guevara, Oakwood's Director of Alumni Relations. Original music courtesy of Ethan Greska, Class of 2008, and Jody Landau, Class of 2010. Intro music and additional sound design by Ivan Johnson. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on and hit subscribe. Our homepage is at anchor.fm slash learned. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Linda Rose Winters, Oakwood's Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, about challenges and victories in pushing both students and teachers to consider race and privilege. Until then, this is Learned.